Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Alan Mitchell at his home in Junction City. It's July 29th, 2022. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alan. Uh, first question to get you started is why wine? Um, yeah, so <laughs> um, I don't really know. I mean, you would have to ask wine because uh, I didn't really find wine or seek out wine. It sort of found me. Um, you know, I always have enjoyed you know, alcohol uh, growing up, especially in the college years. And that's sort of when it happened for me. Um, I, uh, I started out working in a vineyard, uh, tying vines for four cents a vine. Uh, this was Houston Vineyards. Uh, and the, the way that that happened was um, I had just finished graduate school uh, and I'd been studying in Europe overseas. Um, I was in Austria at the University of Salzburg and uh, I finished my graduate program, got home, um, and still was not really in the world of wine other than being around it and drinking it from time to time. I was primarily interested in beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, uh, but I had a friend in Austria. And so when I came back and finished my degrees, I, um, instead of going out into the job market, I um, decided that I was gonna go back to Europe uh, just for fun for the first time. I'd also spent a year in Germany as an undergraduate. Uh, Of course, there was a lot of fun to be had being an exchange student, but you still are a student and you're still kind of working. So this was gonna be the first time that I was gonna go back to Europe uh, just for fun, Mm -hmm. for a few months. And um, so I needed to find a part-time job. I didn't wanna go interview for my real, you know, straight job at that time uh, because it'd be kind of awkward to get a job and then tell your boss, it's like, well, I'm going to be gone for a few months. Are you cool with that? <laughs> um, and so, so instead of doing that, I, I looked for part-time jobs. I grew up, I put myself through school working on a farm. Uh, so I had that skill set. Uh, and so I looked for jobs. It was hard to find a job. This was in 1988. Um, it was kind of a recession going on. It was not easy to find a job then. I worked for a temp agency for a while, which was terrible. Um, but I knew that's just what I had to do. I just had to, you know, earn money and save money mm-hmm. so I could go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, I saw an ad in the Eugene Register Guard, classified ads. They were looking for vineyard help, and this was at Houston Vineyards, like I mentioned, uh, just uh, agricultural labor. And I was so desperate to get out of my temporary job, which was working at the Emporium uh, Warehouse. It was a officer and a gentleman type of a scene. And, um, uh, and so I took the job. I'd never set foot in a vineyard before. And Steve and Julie Houston hired me. We had a small training program. Uh, we actually pruned. And uh, uh, we, we actually just, actually we did the pruning there. And we pruned the vines with their instruction. Uh, and then that was over and they had a labor contractor come in to do uh, the rest of it, actually a vineyard management company uh, to do the brush pulling and the tying and finish it off. Well, the vineyard management company was owned by a guy named Bruce Beal, uh, who actually needed help. They recommended me. 
and I went to work for him and continued to work for him and started to see more vineyards, meet more people, started to develop an interest in wine. I still really didn't know much about it. Uh, and so then I finished out my little stint working for um, Bruce, made my money, went back to Austria. And uh, well, and, and we sort of base, base camped in Austria and traveled around. But um, by that time, I was very much interested in the world of wine. And so being back over in Europe, you know, this was, this was, you know, this is Mecca. So I, you know, really got into it mm -hmm. and started to learn more about it. Um, and then when I came back, uh, I just went back to work for Bruce and that was it. Mm -hmm. You know, I had, um, when I came back, my mom helped me. We went to Nordstrom's in Seattle or no, in sorry, in Salem. And, uh, we bought suits for me to interview in for when I came back so I could get my straight job in, you know, corporate America and whatever that was going to be. And so I came back from Europe, went back to work for Bruce in the vineyard management business. And uh, I never actually once put on those suits. I never wore them. And uh, not once. People thought I was crazy. I mean, I literally went, you know, from theoretically a, a prospect for, you know, kind of a white collar, you know, gig mm -hmm. to literally wearing rain gear in the pouring rain, working outside, just being a laborer. Um, and one of the reasons why I did that, aside from sort of falling in love with the vineyard and, you know, that kind of agriculture, mm -hmm. um, you know, perennial agriculture like an orchard, um, was uh, not just the farming aspect, but the people that were doing it. And that was one of the things that really attracted me to this, because the people that I was meeting that were growing grapes in Oregon and also making wine in Oregon were very interesting. Mm -hmm. These were people that um, didn't need to be doing this. You know, it's kind of a rich man's game. Uh, they, uh, but they chose this. Mm -hmm. They could have probably made way more money or lost less money, you know, in, in any other kind of endeavor that you can possibly imagine, you know, stock market, real estate, you know, I, mm -hmm. whatever there is out there. Uh, but they were, in this because of a passion for this and that made them very interesting. You know, it also helps to be interesting if you're wealthy, but you know, I mean, that was kind of peripheral to the whole thing. This was a genuinely interesting and very diverse group of people. And that's what really uh, struck me and, and still does to this day. It's like, I want to hang out with these people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some of them, well, most of them, almost all of them really still had some kind of a paycheck job in the real world. They were real estate people. They were accountants. Increasingly, they were dot-com guys, uh, stockbrokers. But they, you know, their square outside world kind of was left behind mm -hmm. in this new, to me, world of, of wine and growing grapes. And so, uh, so with that, um, I just kept working and uh so i'm completely self-taught in that regard you know my degrees are in german and political science and you know uh i do have a background in farming i'm mechanically inclined which helps a lot for farming because you you're constantly fixing stuff um and doing stopgap measures of you know just to keep mm -hmm. stuff operating and moving um 
but but uh, as so as that trajectory sort of developed, um, you know, I became more and more interested in it. It's a very collaborative industry. It still is. People are very open, ready, and willing, and happy to share their knowledge and their experiences, their expertise. And so in the vineyard management business, you're working with a lot of different clients all throughout the state, not just in the Willamette Valley. So you're meeting a lot of people uh, and you're learning, constantly learning. And there's, there's no shortage of literature to read, of you know, symposium to go to, uh, trade shows. Uh, so, so really I sort of just turned it into a DIY apprenticeship. And that's kind of how I looked at it. I didn't really foresee myself as just doing that forever, but I saw that as a way for me to continue to learn mm -hmm. the industry, to meet the people, and to someday do I don't know what. I didn't really have a goal in mind at mm -hmm. that point. Mm -hmm. um, some people, particularly my mom, after helping me buy those suits for interviews, was you know, completely, you know, at a loss, you know, it's like, what, what are you doing here? <laughs> and, uh, uh, but there was actually kind of a plan, even though it didn't necessarily have a goal. And, and, and that, you know, to cut to the end kind of somehow wound its way through to uh, having my own vineyard and having a winery that I own, that I uh, have together with, with my business partners, Jeff and Victoria Wilson Charles. And so, um, I sort of jumped to the very end there, but that's that's kind of how everything started for me. Mm -hmm. It was just very organic. It was very, in, you know, I don't want to say impulsive, but, um, you know, it was just, you know, this is where I felt like I really needed and wanted mm -hmm. to go. So before I come back to that, I want to back up a bit. You mentioned uh, kind of at graduate school. So tell me about where you grew up and where you went to school. Uh, and what the what you were thinking at the time would be your life after you graduated. Right, right. So um, I'm a fourth-generation Oregonian, born in Portland. Uh, my wife is a first-generation Oregonian, born in Corvallis. We actually met in high school, or we went to high school together. We didn't meet there. We met much later. Uh, so I'm, you know, deeply, you know, I don't want to say patriotic, but, you know, Oregon is, I'm all about Oregon. And the more places I've gone, the more I love Oregon. <laughs> Uh, I consider myself an Oregonian, you know, first and, you know, a U.S. citizen by law because you have to be that if you're going to be an Oregonian. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I grew up in Corvallis and, uh, and I went to OSU. I was fairly lazy and non-curious in ways that really help you advance in this world, you know, in a, in a, you know, in a, you know, economically remunerative way. Uh, I reluctantly went to college. Um, I had the first part of that paid for by my parents who really wanted me to go. And then, like I mentioned, I, you know, paid the rest myself. Um, I didn't have any uh, real set of goals. I was afraid of the future. I had a, a fear of uh, becoming bored with everything. You know, as long as I can remember as a child, uh, I would get in really into something and it would last a month or a summer and then I'd be done with it and want to go on to the next. And it actually caused me quite a bit of anxiety because I thought, 
how am I ever going to survive as an adult when my attention span is like three months at the most? <laughs> and uh, so I didn't, you know, when I started out at OSU, I was a German minor because I already knew how to speak the language when I was uh, 12. Our family lived in Zurich and for a year, and so I had that language wired into me. So that was a that was a um, kind of an automatic thing. Mm -hmm. All I needed to do was to select a major. And so I would have some major and my German minor. And one day after five some odd years, Oregon State University sent me a letter and said, yeah, you're done. You just graduated with a degree in German. <laughs> so see you later. Uh, so I never declared a major. So I was really kind of aimless in that regard mm -hmm. in terms of you know, what it's gonna take to be an adult. You know, what is it? What is it? It's an unknown world to me, and it's a world that doesn't look, you know, that, you know, welcoming to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always felt comfortable in that world, but not as a, you know, necessarily as an active, constructive, successful participant in that world. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but as an undergraduate, there was a, there's a fantastic program, and it's still in existence. It's the, or, it's the Oregon State System of Higher Education combined with Baden-Württemberg, which is the state in southwestern Germany, so universities, so PSU, OSU, University of Oregon, there may be others, um, mm -hmm. have, a, have an exchange program with the universities of that state in Germany, so Stuttgart, Freiburg, mm -hmm. Konstanz, Tübingen, uh, and so I went on that exchange program and I fell in love with travel and I fell in love with Europe and I fell in love with just being in places that were, you know, not my place. And that's sort of how Austria happened was because I, when I did get done with OSU, all I wanted to do was go back. And so I looked around and I found there was an exchange program at a university called the University of Bowling Green in Ohio. Mm -hmm. I'd never been in Ohio before. Uh, but, you know, you spent a year in in Salzburg, Austria, and then you spent another year at Bowling Green State University, and that's all I cared about. It was political science and, and German. I'd never had a political science <laughs> course before, so I, I took, um, I actually hitchhiked out there and met with professors, and, uh, and then uh, they told me, well, you don't, why do you think you can get a MA in political science, you've never even had a political science course. And so I went back to OSU and took two terms of nothing but political science postdoc, postbac. And they let me in and they gave me a research assistantship, so it was all paid for. I just had to work a little bit, but I had a great professor who didn't really make me work very much. <laughs> and, um, and so that's how Austria happened. And so that's, you know, just another example of a really roundabout way of stuff, you know, happening and coming together without a lot of organization or motivation or drive on my part. Mm -hmm. You know, just kind of, you know, as I think is important for, you know, someone in their early 20s, you know, living life by the moment and not being highly structured. Although, of course, you know, graduate school is a highly structured environment, but, but you know, we found ways to destructuralize it. <laughs> <laughs> So you come back and you're and you're working in the vineyard and you're starting to kind of develop this affinity for it. So tell me about the the work itself and what what the industry looked like to you at that point. What were what were the what what did it how how big was it? What was it doing and what were, what were the kind of the the main characters that you were working with? Right. So it was a completely different world, <clears throat> of course, from now. You know, this is 30 years ago. 
more than 30 years ago. Um, you know, this may not be historically accurate, but I, I sort of um, saw it as kind of like the second wave. So, you know, we had the first wave in the late 70s, uh, or no, sorry, late 60s, early 70s, and this is, you know, David Lett and uh, Charles Curry and um, Dick Erath, Dick Ponzi, and these guys, Fuller down there in, in uh, Southern Oregon. Um, and I think things kind of stayed kind of the way it was with those pioneering guys. There wasn't really any infrastructure. I mean, you think about it, I mean, you're, you're moving to the moon. You know, you're going to plant grapes, but there's no wineries. There's no, what are you going to do with those grapes? There's no vineyard supply infrastructure. There's no winery supply. You know, everything you got to do, you got to get from California. And, you know, all, you know at someday you're going to have, you know, 15 tons of Pinot Noir, what do you do with it? So, I mean, you know, that, it took a while for that sort of infrastructure, I think, mm -hmm. you know, and the historians can, can correct me on that point. But it seemed to me, you know, from, from my island where I was sitting in the late 80s and in the early 90s, that that was kind of stayed the same until that happened. Mm -hmm. And then you had people uh, showing up you know, in the vineyard management capacity, you had Oregon Vineyard Supply came around. Mm -hmm. um, still all the equipment and stuff, I think, was coming out of California. Uh, but it was very different. You know, the way that we farmed was different. The way that we farmed was really pretty intuitive. And, you know, a lot of the growers were just people, men and women, who just had a green thumb and wanted to grow stuff. And you could find textbooks out of UC Davis about, you know, different kinds of trellising, you know, different ways to, you know, spacing, site selection, things like this. But it was really pretty do-it-yourself. And there was a lot of really weird trellises designs that came and gone and never panned out. There was weird spacings. There was weird site selections. Mm -hmm. um, there wasn't really much in the way of canopy management. You know, we didn't have air blast sprayers. We didn't have a lot of the, you know, the fungicidal type you know, recipes that we use today in the vineyard. Um, so I, but, but people were, people were taking notice and, and really starting to, you know, become interested in it. Mm -hmm. Not just oddball weirdos that were, wanted to do it, but also in the media, I think there was an increased presence. Um, the media were, were hungry for vineyard stories. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned Houston vineyards before, so they were very, ink friendly very photogenic you know and it was always a great story and people wanted to find out about it and when you when you know people found out that you were working in the wine industry or the grape industry that was pretty cool because you were like doing something that you know was was first of all it was cool and second of all like they don't know anybody else that's doing that mm -hmm. it's like wow really you're you're there mm -hmm. um and so, so the things that were happening were, you know, like I, like I said, I think kind of sort of second wave. Uh, there was a lot of development in the 80s, or excuse me, in the 90s, you know, when people started to um, have more access to not only literature and, uh, and just the, the ever, you know, widening you know, pool of people that were doing this, which also brought in different perspectives and different 
uh, expertise, different experiences. Hey, this worked, this didn't work. Um, they're also starting to become, you know, the infrastructure that we needed to be able to, to, to do what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell me about how your role evolved and changed as you started working for Bruce and start, he's mentioned starting to meet more people and starting to see more places. Um, how did your role evolve and over the, over the years and it, and at what point did the, did you take sort of the next step? So, um, Right, so we managed a lot of vineyards, and and as I continued to develop and continued to, you know, become more of an asset to the company, eventually I sort of wound up being sort of the right-hand man of the operation and, you know, in charge of, like, the sort of the daily stuff and making a lot more decisions, you know, on my own, um, not being told, okay, do this, do that, do this, but I would, you know, gradually take on more and more of that responsibility of just knowing what needed to be done, directing crews, executing, getting stuff done, inter interacting with clients. Mm -hmm. And so that was a progression that just sort of happened pretty much over the eight or some odd years that I worked for Bruce, you know, up until the point where um, I was sort of, you know, he was much more involved with just operating the business, keeping the business running you know, looking for new avenues of growth and, you know, uh, meeting new, you know, getting, you know, establishing new clients and that sort of thing. And not, you know, as I became more involved with operations, he sort of became more, you know, just strictly business type stuff, although he did and still does, uh, you know, do all of that stuff, just like we all do. Uh, and so, you know, we had clients uh, at some, sometimes we were quite big, you know, we had 600 some odd acres that we were uh, managing and um, you know sometimes we called it farming the freeway because we had vineyards from Roseburg all the way up to the Dalles you know not just Willamette Valley mm -hmm. and so there was a lot of windshield time uh, right about that time cell phones were starting to happen I mean we used to do this with no cell phones and I don't know how <laughs> we ever did that uh, but we did and um, and so uh, you know this whole farming the freeway concept sort of became a self-fulfilling prophecy and that's kind of what it ended up being. You know, we could manage people's vineyards, we could bring in their crop, grow their crop, bring it in without stumbling and do that and and make, you know, fulfill our duty. But but that was kind of it. You know, we were limited. And we had a lot of people that really wanted to go to the next step, you know, they wanted their they've they've been reading about biodynamic. They've been reading about live certification, about different, you know, tilth, Oregon tilth or you know, IOBC, different kinds, you know, they, they, they're in this because it's groovy and they want to take it to the next level of groovy and they want to start farming in a way that, you know, and a lot of times, most of the time we weren't able to offer. And I would have to have that talk with people. Like I can, I can help you and I will help you do this, but I can't implement it for you mm -hmm. because I'm farming the freeway. You know, I'm chasing crews. I'm you know, putting out fires and doing all this sort of thing. And I can't, you know, get a cow horn and fill it full of, you know, manure and bury it and then dig it up and then spray your vineyard with it. I just, you know, I just don't have the, you know, what we now say bandwidth <laughs> for that. <laughs> I just have to keep the wheels from falling off and, you know, make sure that, you know, we, you know, through all the vagaries of, you know, uh, of agricultural pursuits of any kind, you know, that we, you know, that we do that we best we can to pull the whole thing off. Mm -hmm. And so, and so that was becoming kind of an increasing, you know, uh, element of, 
I don't want to say tension, but you know that was happening more and more, and um, and eventually it got to the point where one of our clients, who is now my business partner, was one of the most interested in doing everything. They wanted to do compost tea. They wanted to do all that, and uh, right around the year 1999, you know things sort of came to a head. They wanted to hire me away from the company that I work for and be their vineyard management, be their, you know, full-time vineyard manager mm -hmm. so that we could mm -hmm. really develop a really groovy, holistic, you mm -hmm. know, integrated concept to growing grapes. And, um, and so, uh, but with 12 acres, that doesn't work. You know, you have to have 60, 70, 80 acres before you can economically justify having a full-time person just doesn't pencil out because, you know, what am I going to do all the time? And uh, and so right about that time, they said, well, have you ever started, have you ever thought about uh, doing a winery? And um, it <laughs> seems, seems funny now thinking back about it, but I, I said, well, you know, I have thought about that. And I would, you know, I would, I would consider it if, you know, if the right investor came along because we don't have any money. You know, all of this that you see was, you know, uh, done, you know, basically by me and my wife. I mean, we did it all ourselves. But, uh, but anyway, they asked me that question, and I said, well, yeah, if the right investor came along, and they said, well, how about us? And um, that, that I was a little bit taken aback by that. I knew that, you know, that they, they had, you know, that they were, they had resources. But I didn't know, you know, how much to that, to what extent. I guess it could have been a tip off that neither of them have paycheck jobs. But, um, you know, but they're, you know, fantastic, wonderful people and have been fantastic partners uh, throughout, you know, the 22 years that we've been doing territorial. And uh, and so uh, so that happened. We were going to build the winery here on this place. This is 70 acres. It's got a separate driveway down there with a culvert and everything. We were going to. You know, these are the kind of people, uh, incredibly aesthetically minded people that, you know, that we're not just going to throw up a tin building mm. and start making wine in it. It's going to be dug into the side of the hill. It's going to have underground case storage. It's going to have gravity. It's going to have, you know, all that stuff. And so we actually went down that path and looked at it. But it was it was just so insanely expensive to do something like that. And and you didn't even know where the ceiling was. I mean, you know, it could go, it could be anything. So I mean, it's not. So this is not going to be another, you know, Napa Valley type of a, you know, uh, uh, just a a huge, you know, edifice to, you know, too much money. And so at that time, uh, you know, they 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 had another recession on. <laughs> So we found the Boys Coffee Warehouse in downtown Eugene, and they bought that building, and um, and then we built our winery inside there. So that's how we sort of became an urban winery. But that's that's sort of how you know the transition went from farming to mm -hmm. winery. Although I still farm, you know, we still uh, I still manage my own vineyard, of course, and and their vineyard as well. I manage. Um, a few other, several other vineyards, about 60 acres in total, and I just do that so that I can keep my crew busy year-round and pay a living wage. 
Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't manage those other vineyards. But it's another, you know, economy of scale type mm -hmm. of a thing. And so, um, because I, I I hate the whole labor contractor thing. I think there's a lot of exploitation there, and also it's basically like having turnover every year. My guys have worked for me for over 12 years, mm -hmm. and they know exactly how you know we like everything to be done. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I can't imagine my life if I if I lost them and had to turn that over because I would have to I would have to start working again. <laughs> and I say that somewhat facetiously, but I mean we're we we do. Actually, you know, when you drive by here and you see a guy up there wearing rain gear or you see somebody on the tractor in a spray suit, you know, that's me. It's not a vineyard management company. It's not anything else. And, and so in that ways, I mean, we still harken back to the way it was kind of when everybody was doing their own thing and there wasn't vineyard management companies. And so that part of it, you know, is still there. That's the part of it that I still really love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, and that's how sort of we did all of our stuff, like I mentioned, you know, we did it all ourselves. I made all my own plants, and we couldn't afford to do anything. You know, I drove every single post that you see up there. I built the deer fence. I did all of that. And when I was working for Bruce, you know, I would bring the tractor home and work, you know, till dark or you know on the weekends. And because I was, I was still young. You could still do that when you're young. <laughs> and uh, and so that's you know, and that's actually another thing. Uh, that just occurred to me, you know, the earlier question about how things have changed in Oregon. Um, and this hasn't changed that much, but it's changed a little bit. But I think one of the things that sets Oregon apart in the world is that you can still get into this industry just through your own will and desire to, to do it. Yeah, it's going to take a little bit of money, but you know, you don't have to be born into, you don't have to be like the fifth generation of a chateau in France. Or, like, you know, a dot-com guy to just buy the chateau. Mm -hmm. You can actually still do it here. Maybe not as much as when we started, but, you know, that was very much, you know, another aspect of the industry in those earlier days that, um, that was really cool. And we, you know, I don't know if everybody did, but, I mean, I was certainly aware of it. It's like, wow, you can get into this really rarefied 5,000-year-old industry just because you want to. And there's nobody there to tell you you can't do it. So I'm talking about the, I want to talk about the, before we get into the, the urban winery part, I want to talk about the farming a bit. You mentioned that the, the desire for change into a more holistic biodynamic, mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's early for Oregon to be getting into that. That, that, that was, uh, I'm, I'm curious about uh, the process for that as you did start to farm, change farming methods. What was the process like for learning what you need to do and then actually implementing those kind of measures in the vineyard? Well, um, for us really, you know, it started with the compost tea, but then, uh, you know, it went to live low input viticulture enology, the, the program, the Oregon program, which is, is also has the salmon safe tag and the, the IOBC, the, the European sort of component of that. And we did that for five years, maybe more. Uh, we, you know, we did the paperwork, we did the bureaucracy, we did the inspections, we paid the fees, we put the logo on our bottle, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and learned a lot from, you know, the, the sort of the structure and the guidelines and the whole concept of salmon safe and, and low input, um, you know, integrated pest management, you know, primarily, you know, for me, it was my biggest takeaway from mm -hmm. that. Um, the only reason, in my opinion, that you get certified 
is so that you can sell more wine, you know, to be utterly cynical about it. You know, I don't need to have a merit badge on my shirt driving down Ferguson Road that says I'm certified organic. I mean, it doesn't matter to me that anybody knows or doesn't know, mm -hmm. but putting that, being able to put that officially on your bottle and on your packaging and your materials and stuff, you know, that, that should translate into better sales, mm -hmm. more sales. Mm -hmm. It should contribute to a more robust, you know, basically, for the lack of a better word, just the economic part of it strictly. Uh, and, you know, here in Oregon, and increasingly throughout, you know, the markets that we're in, in throughout the country and, and even overseas, uh, people are very interested in how things are grown. You know, they, they want to know, uh, you know, what your farming philosophy is, what your techniques are. Um, you know, when I go do sales uh, visits in, in other markets, you know, I'm going as the grower, I'm not the winemaker. Mm. And, uh, you know, I can talk, you know, ad nauseum about the whole, all the winemaking, uh, but, you know, the growing part of it is something that people really, you know, react to and respond to. And so the narrative of how we do things never changed when we were certified or not certified. But certification is a pain in the ass. You know, it's a lot of work. And, you know, it's like, okay, once a year there's going to be, you know, the inspections, which takes once a day. And you think, oh, that's no problem. It's one day a year. You know, but when that day comes, it's like, I don't have time for this. I don't want to do this. <laughs> I hate this, you know. And so since it didn't really translate into anything, I dropped it. Mm -hmm. And so we just farm, you know, according to and in most cases beyond you know what that particular certification would require and i still talk about that that's how we farm but i don't have the merit badge anymore and it doesn't seem to matter but yeah it's 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 you know these kinds of um you know it's already a very soft form of agriculture you know you compare it to corn i mean if you look at you know all the different things that you can spray on corn it's crazy and if you look at all the things that you can legally buy labels, you know, spray or add to, you know, a viticultural, you know, operation to growing grapes, it's, it's hardly anything there at all. Hmm. It's really easy to be sustainable and organic. And I know that sustainable is a word that, you know, can be problematic because of what does that mean? Um, but, but, but I use it and if somebody wants to know what it means, I can explain it to them. Um, it might be a different explanation every time, but um, it's still going to have that kernel of, you know, we're growing the stuff as softly as we can. And, and, and really, we're obliged to, you know, if we want to think about, you know, long term, especially when you're, when you're, when you're looking at a perennial crop, um, you know, you need to be taking care of it so that it's happy. And so that we know that, that you know, drenching the soil with herbicides harms the microbial activity that you know we require to be there you know in a healthy population underground helping the soil be the stomach of the plant and helping all those processes go we know and actually the the, the square industry so, um, and so the soil is a big part of that of mm -hmm. course you know we're all about the soil you know it's really in a lot of ways you know it's a cliche but it's true it's that that's our first crop mm -hmm. is the soil mm -hmm. and that has to be right because if you don't then your plants are going to be struggling they're going to be anemic they're not going to be happy um, 
and and in terms of uh, integrated pest management, you know, having all the different flowering species, letting stuff grow, get fuzzy. You know, the golf course look does not work for that. You know, you have to have weeds. And, you know, and, and when we did our live surveys out here when we were certified, you know, we would find, I was even surprised, you know, we would find 35 different species of, you know, weed growing on the vineyard floor, you know, all flowering at different times. And so this is habitat for your beneficial insects that are gonna, you know, so for example, you know, this thing here is gonna eat a rust mite or a mm -hmm. bud mite, which can, you know, impact us. Um, insecticides are out of the question, basically. I mean, they even knew that back in the 60s. If you go back and read General Viticulture, which was published in the mid 60s, and is, I think it's been periodically updated, but even back in 1965 in California, where there was nothing that you can't fix with a spray, nothing. They, they say, do not spray any insecticides because mm -hmm. the problem is, is that, you know, they can't be targeted. Mm -hmm. they, they, they erase everything. Mm -hmm. And then so when you have that blank slate there, then, then that's, that's an open invitation for the harmful ones that you don't want mm -hmm. to come in and fill that void. And so some things like that are, um, you know, though that, that concept has been around for a long time. People may not know that. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's not on the table. And so what's left? Okay, it's really about the soil and, and what you're doing with the soil. You know, amending the soil. You know, we take soil samples and, you know, the goal is because we're extracting every year we're taking fruit away, tons and tons of fruit away. Um, you know, we're taking away, and that's not how nature works. You know, a natural system that's in balance, like a, like a rainforest where no man has ever set foot, you know, this is a system that's in balance. And, and without any in intervention from man, and when I say man, I mean woman too. Um, and, <laughs> but, uh, and so, so we have to try to figure out a way to, to mimic that. And so we do use soil amendments based on what our soil sample calls for. And so we do try to build our soils so that all of that is there. Mm -hmm. So it's not technically fertilizing. It's not like we take triple 16 and give each plant a shot of that. You know, if, if things, if it's like, if, we're, if, we're, if, we, if we see like, for example, a magnesium deficiency you know, we'll, we'll make a, an application of dolomitic limestone, but the plant isn't saying, oh, wow, we've got magnesium now. But we want all of those components to be present in the soil in balance as if it were a primordial untouched, you know, system. Mm -hmm. So that one day when the grape wakes up and says, oh, I, I think I need some magnesium today, I'm gonna break off a little bit of this and I'm gonna take some mag because that's kind of how I'm feeling right now then we want that to be there, mm -hmm. but it's not a, so, you know, we, so we believe in those soil amendments, even though we don't believe in, you know, really kind of like a hydroponic style, you know, porking the, the, the vines with, with crack basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, what about at the time when you were asked about uh, if you ever thought about getting into the winery part of things, wine part of things, mm -hmm. um, how serious were you at that point and how much thought had you given to being, to being in wine? Well, we were. You know, we made what we called barn wine. You know, we, you know, in fact, I'd been making wine longer than my first winemaker. Uh, 
but you know, in a, in a, in a, you know, in a, um, in sort of a, a hobby that just like went way too far. Uh, so we had, we had all these vineyard clients and they wanted wine too. You know, one of the things that happens to you in the wine industry is, you know, when you go to the family picnic or the gathering or whatever, and they say, oh, well, Alan can, you know, why don't you bring the wine? You know, and my brother would, you know, his, his, he would have to bring like a bag of chips. <laughs> and I'd say, well, I, I want to just bring the bag of chips because the wine isn't free for me just because I work in that business, you know. So anyway, that sort of translates into what I'm trying to get at here. The different growers that we had, you know, they're not wineries, they're growing grapes for wineries. And, and they want wine too, because they're in the same boat and also they want to drink wine. And so what we would do is, uh, for example, we'd take like a ton of grapes from a, a grower with, with, you know, with explicit warning that we, very good chance we can screw this up, you know, but if you trust us, we'll do it. And so they would like, we would get a ton of grapes, for example, which is, you know, 60, some 60, 70 cases worth. And we would make the wine in the barn and then we would buy the glass and buy the cork and we would make the wine and bottle it and then split it with them. And so we were already making wine on a ridiculous, silly scale. Uh, but I mean, it's a lot of fun, mm -hmm. but it was hard for us to do very well because the same time that you're making wine is also when you're supposed to be harvesting all these 600 acres. So you can't call up the client and say, yeah, I can't really come harvest your vineyard today because I'm racking this barrel of Pinot Noir in the barn. And so, so there was a lot of neglect, mm -hmm. you know, and we poured out a lot of wine, you know, particularly white wines with, you know, with no real way of controlling refrigeration, but occasionally we would make some really, really nice wines. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how that part started, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a pretty kind of like a, an industrial strength hobby. And a way, and it was a way for us to get free wine, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, basically by the sweat of our own labor, uh, you know, and then give half of it, and and it was a it was a beautiful thing. People loved it, and I mean, it was a it was a you know it was the first time I realized how much people love sort of the mystique of a bottle of wine that does not have a label on it. I mean, and to this day, that's something that's like woo that's special. It doesn't have a label or, it, or it's like a duct tape, mm -hmm. you know, with, with, you know, 2000, you know, two written on it. Uh, so, um, so yeah, so the, so, you know, so coeval with sort of the development of, you know, the whole vineyard trajectory for me, I guess, you know, at the same time it was happening all this, you know, wine. And we learned a lot that way. You know, my best friend, uh, Brad Beal, Bruce's brother, uh, who was an amazing winemaker, uh, was a huge help. And we would, you know, get, you know, chemicals and, you know, like citric acid and stuff like that and that he would find somewhere and we would, you know, and, and then he would help us, you know. And, and a lot of times the help sessions had to go late into the evening, you know, hanging around the barrels, you know, making sure that the quality was just right. <laughs> <laughs> And so it was, it was a, you know, it was, it was a glorious world. You know, we were young, we were single, we were working in the wine industry, 
kind of being cowboys, but also taking it very seriously. And um, it was just a really magical time. So how did that translate? What, what, what were your expectations upon purchasing a property and going to commercial wine? What were the expectations you had and how did it actually translate in the first few years? Right, so, um, you know, from the very beginning, you know, I lived in town in Eugene and was, you know, doing kind of the opposite of what people do now. They, they people like want to have a little place in the country and they commute to town. I was doing the opposite, living in town, commuting to these beautiful properties all over the Valley. And of course, I, I, I was obsessed with finding a property. I hungered for it. I desire, it was a constant thing. I just, I want to get, I want to live on one of these places. I want to, I want that to be me. And, um, you know, we, I, I, uh, I found this place, um, it was a very, very long time ago. Um, we, uh, you know, we built fences too, because in the vineyard business, you have to build a deer fence. So we learned how to build fences. And so we actually started doing fencing projects when, um, when things were slow. Mm -hmm. And so I went out one day to bid a fence at this house when it was down there. This house was moved here and it was down on Grimes Road. And I went out and I sat on the porch of this house way long, long time ago, presenting a fencing bid to the owner of the house who was, happens to be John Newmeister who has Cattail Creek Farms. Hmm. Um, and I would actually park my pickup down in front of this place. It was all Christmas trees at that time. And I would look at this place and think what a great place it was and what, how cool it would be. And right about that time was the invention of cell phones, which didn't really work anywhere. But this was a place where I could drive my pickup where I knew my phone couldn't work. And uh, they actually still don't really work out here. And sometimes I would sit and I would eat my lunch down on that road and just look at this place. And this was years before we bought this. Mm -hmm. And uh, and in the meantime, I was looking. I had a real estate friend. And I said, just just keep looking, you know, this is what I want. I want something in the country. I want something that you can plant grapes on. And, you know, of course there's nothing, there's never anything. And then one day I met with Bruce and one of his friends who was a house mover, who was a guy that, that was a guy that moved this house and who owned this place. And they said, why don't you drive out there? I think that place is for sale. So I drove out here and it was this place, the place that I used to come and look at. And I just thought, wow, that's pretty weird. And I drove up and there was a guy here on a mower and a woman. And I said, I heard that this place might be for sale. And he just said, yeah, write two checks. <laughs> <laughs> and so that began a crazy odyssey of, you know, that took about, about a year. And, you know, like I said, we didn't have any money. Um, we got very lucky and uh, it somehow ended up buying this place. Well, it turned out it was a lot more than just this, what I could see. It's, you know, it goes, goes off that way for almost a mile. But um, uh, so that was crazy. All of a sudden we had this and um, it was, it was like a dream. Mm -hmm. And it had all these, you know, precursory type, you know, foreshadowings, like bidding the thing and sitting in here and looking at this place. You know, if you could go back in time and say, you know, someday, someday you will actually own this, I would have said, you're crazy. There's no way. Mm -hmm. 
uh, but that happened, and um, and so we started nurturing grapevines, and we planted the first one in I think it was 1998. My wife and I were out there laying it out. She was pregnant out to here with our first son, and and then two years later we had to wait for the Christmas tree crop to get off, and we planted this other one up here, and I think it was 2002, and. Um, and so, yeah, so that happened. And um, and I can't remember what the, did I answer the question? It's a much better answer oh. than I could have asked for. <laughs> okay. I was talking about the commercial wine part of things, but keep oh. talking about this property and then we'll talk about the, we'll talk about the wine next. Yeah, so, so yeah, the property is, I mean, it's, it's, it's heaven and it still is, you know, we've, we've, we've lived here, it's going on 25 years. Um, when I come home from town or when we drive out here, I can still just feel the tension melting away as the addresses get bigger on the mailboxes and you get out here. And uh, it's just a glorious little neighborhood. This this road, Ferguson, and also High Pass, which sort of parallels it a little bit to the south. Um, yeah, it's just been a dream come true. And I still feel the magic the way that I did when we first got it. I mean, it was really just... Um, quite a uh, watershed moment in my life. Mm -hmm. And the vineyards themselves, tell me about the inst installing them and, and what you were, what you planted, how you planted it and, and how it's developed. So we planted, uh, so we planted all own rooted. We couldn't afford grafted stuff. Uh, so we made all our own plants right over there, which is the garden now, um, you know, from sticks that I went out and gathered in other vineyards. Um, and uh, and so we yeah we we just laid it out like I'd done hundreds of times before for other people, but this time you know it was for ourselves. Uh, we um, yeah I mean like I said we did it we did it all ourselves and you know that's where you know I mentioned the whole learning process of this sort of DIY you know apprenticeship that I did. Another big part of that is meeting people you know, the context that I developed. And so I sort of cajoled one of our clients into selling me his old, crappy old international gas tractor for, you know, less than it was worth. And he was, he was kind of, you know, just helping me out. And so, you know, all of a sudden I had a tractor. And then, you know, once you have a tractor, then you can, you know, eventually keep upgrading until you get something that can really, you know, do the job. And so there was, you know, endless little things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, finding a, a sprayer at an estate sale for $350 that's like a $9,000 sprayer and you know things like that 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 sort of have to happen mm -hmm. if you're going to do it by yourself and there was a string of them and a lot of it just fell into our laps but a lot of it you know was basically stuff that we made happen uh, and so yeah so we 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 planted it and did almost all of the work ourselves you know with the exception of the actual planting there's just too much to do by yourself but yeah the whole you know, building the trellis, driving the posts, all the anchor wires, you know, doing all of that. Um, yeah, we did that ourselves. And so, um, you know, it's it's kind of a young man's game and we were young. So on the wine side of things, tell me about the the finding the building for the for the original winery or for the winery and developing that from what it was into what you wanted it to be. So I mentioned that we were originally, the original idea was to have it out on one of our farms. This one's set up really nicely for it. Actually, theirs does too. They've got a beautiful timber frame barn 
uh, which would have been cool. Um, but, you know, these things were, you know, especially in also being in the country, you know, the, the permitting is just a, it's a, it's a pretty, you know, steep challenge. You almost have to have a full-time person that just does compliance just to even get close. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so then we started just looking around town and we looked at the old Lockmead, I think it was Lockmead, there's a big ice cream factory down in 7th and Chambers, which is, it just so happened to be that that was like the busiest intersection in all of Lane County. And so, but I mean, this was like a huge compound and it was like a rabbit warren inside. And then we found the old Boyd's Coffee Warehouse, which had been sitting empty for two years down in the Whitaker neighborhood, mixed use neighborhood, so we're surrounded by houses. We've got an e-web substation. There's some, you know, and now, you know, now there's breweries and distilleries. You know, we're two blocks from Ninkazi. Two blocks the other way is Oakshire, uh, Hop Valley, Heritage Distillery. You know, all these restaurants are down there now. Back then it was, it, it was the wilderness. You know, it was, it was really, it was full of needles and uh, there was, you know, a permanent encampment. It's a mm -hmm. sort of a dead end street because the railroad's right there. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, you know, this is a 12,000 square foot box with 25 foot high ceilings and concrete tilt up and with some, you know, office space and their display room, which is now our retail room. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so they had another recession on <laughs> and so that was able to be had for, you know, for pretty cheap, mm -hmm. really. Uh, and so when, but when we looked at it, it was huge. I mean, it, was, it looked like the trailblazers could play in there. And we thought, well, okay, but I mean, it'll work. I mean, our winery will be like this little couple tanks and a couple barrels way down there in the corner. And what are we going to do with all this space? It's like, well, now it's packed to the gills. I mean, it's full of tanks and barrels and case storage and everything else. Uh, but anyway, we had this blank slate. Uh, that also had some of the infrastructure which set up perfectly for a winery. It had a, you know, they had where Boyd's Coffee tested all of their espresso machines and that sort of thing. Uh, it had a Formica counter and a sink, and it was a perfect size for a wine lab, and that's what it is now. It's a lab. The retail room had, um, you know, it was crazy. They were going to have a coffee shop down there, but they had, like, the acoustic tile ceilings and fluorescent lights and crazy weird you know horrible wallpaper and like brown carpet you know and so um i don't know who would want to drink coffee in a place like that but um anyway uh so it had that and but then it had this big huge open space mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we we cut out a 25 by 20 25 foot square and put a one percent slope on it and a drain and so that's our basically the crush pad where all the you know work happens mm -hmm. We cut some floor drains, we did some plumbing, we put a chiller up on the roof, and then we built a wall from the last two bays so that we have uh, climate-controlled indoor case storage so we don't have to pay you know, the abbey or somewhere else to, to store the wines for us. So we have our own climate-controlled uh, case storage. The building takes up almost the entire footprint of the property. So what that means is, is that when we're harvesting or, I mean, when we're processing fruit, it's all inside. You know, we don't have to, like, have tarps and tents and stuff for, you know, because in harvest time, it's raining, too, most of the time. And so that's another great luxury that we have 
you know, in addition to being in a state winery is, is that we can, you know, our processing happens inside. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter what's going on outside. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's kind of how the winery happened. You know, it, it happened, uh, at a time, uh, when, I don't know if you remember this, but that was when hoof and mouth was, was all over Europe. And so there was a big quarantine. And so we were kind of, you know, and then of course other things happen in the bureaucratic world of, you know, real estate and everything else, uh, that we were coming right down to the, you know, the, the, the one inch yard line for harvest. And we still hadn't, it wasn't done. And our press was stuck somewhere because a press is agricultural equipment. Mm -hmm. So even though hoof and mouth is not going to get on a press and we're not going to bring it in here and infect our cows, it was part of that ban. So our press that was coming from Italy, we, we, we didn't have a press. And it's August and stuff is getting ripe and we've got fruit and what are we going to do with it? And uh, so, uh, so we cobbled together uh, some of the stuff that we could do, which, you know, a lot of it was used, so we weren't subject to, to the hoof and mouth quarantine. We bought a really nice uh, crusher distemmer from Adelsheim. We bought some nice equipment from, from other people, but we didn't have a press, so we had to, so, so we had to borrow a press. And we borrowed an old Wilms uh, air bladder press from Die Crisp, who has... Um, uh, Lumos. Lumos, and... Um, and uh, so we had a press that we could do, and we actually started processing wine with our press and with our stuff that we had cobbled together. And we were in the second day of processing, I think, and uh, a bureaucrat from the city of Eugene walked into the winery with a piece of paper saying that we were allowed to be a winery. <laughs> And we just kind of said, thank you, nothing to see here. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> we'll finally get started Right, now. yeah, yeah, we can start. <laughs> because we just told the grapes to wait, you know, until we get this piece of paper. So, so anyway, that was, I mean, I, I guess that's sort of the highlights of uh, the Boyd's Coffee Warehouse that is now Territorial Vineyards. So as you started, uh, tell me about coming up with, with the name and, for the, and the label, and, and what were you... What was your initial goal? Did you have a size in mind? Did you have what? What was the kind of the initial goal you had to hit? Yeah. So, um, so the name, you know, for those of you that have ever been in a garage band, you know, we were in band name hell for a long time because there's four people: myself, my wife, and Jeff and Victoria. That you know, all of us are creative, and I guess maybe strong-willed people too. Some of us, and. Uh, and so coming up with something that everybody likes, yeah, that took a long time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, so we finally came up with Territorial Vineyards and Wine Company because, you know, we wanted to say vineyards and we wanted to say that we're a winery. Uh, probably 98% of the grapes that are grown in Lane County are growing up and down the Territorial Highway. So we had that, incorporated that sense of place into the whole thing. And then hopefully, you know, uh, that's gonna translate it and make sense to people. And it, I think largely it has. Mm -hmm. One of the problems is that it means that we have really, really long email addresses, which is every time you have to spell that out to somebody, you, you think about that. It's like, <laughs> oh, that's a really, really long email address. <laughs> and uh, so um, uh, so that, that's the name. 
um, what was the second part of the sort question? Of initial goal. What, what were you oh, kind right, of right, anticipating right. in yeah. the first few years? So, so when we started, um, uh, the University of uh, Washington up in Spokane had they were doing some studies on the economics of of uh, wineries, mm -hmm. and and so we didn't completely go into this thing, you know, with complete naivete. I mean, there was some concepts there was some actual even numbers you know involved although we just wanted to do this and so we just sort of barreled into it but we you know there was analysis done where they looked at you know case production and return on investment and everything and so 5,000 cases was a sweet spot that was identified in the study um, and so we sort of went with that and we strove to achieve that and and by and large we have and that's kind of the level that we're at mm -hmm. although um, I think that we may um, we may expand it's 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 showing itself to be not quite as feasible as, as it should be so I think you know you can still be six seven maybe even eight thousand cases and still have that intimacy mm -hmm. you know so so Ray Walsh our winemaker a uh, very talented, uh, great guy uh, with a huge uh, reserve of, you know, enthusiasm and curiosity, even after all these years, which I think is almost more important than your skills, although he does have an amazing skill set. Um, you know, even at 7,000 cases, you know, we're still going to be able to be intimately involved mm -hmm. and know every single barrel. So he's not an executive winemaker, you know, he's kind of like an analog of the way we are in the vineyards. It's like when you see a guy wearing rubber boots and hooking up a pump, it's going to be Ray. You know, we do have help, you know, periodically, you know, the year, especially at harvest time. But um, he's not an executive winemaker with a lab coat that walks around and writes out a work order and then some people go do it. You know, if you get too big, you know, there's barrels that the winemaker has never even smelled or tasted or looked at. Mm -hmm. Um, but you can still, so at 5,000 cases, that's kind of baked in. I mean, that's, you, you have to be that way because you're not going to have a staff. You're not, you know, you're not at a scale that can, can mm -hmm. allow for that. But, uh, but you can carry that up probably, probably even to 10,000 cases and still have that intimacy, that connection, that hands-on, you know, knowledge of every drop of wine that's out there in your cellar mm -hmm. and be able to, you know, do the, do all the other seller procedures and all the other tasks that have to be done to keep the thing going and not go sideways. So speaking of Ray, uh, yeah. where, how did you, how did you go about finding a winemaker? Uh, so, uh, Ray is our second winemaker. He started with us in 2013 through my, you know, another one of those connections thing. I mean, Ray and I knew each other from the, almost the day he got off the boat and worked up at King Estate. Yeah, because we grew a lot of grapes for King Estate and hauled fruit up there. And, you know, you meet those people and you meet the people at all the wineries that you, you know, that you're, that you're bringing fruit into. And so, you know, I always liked Ray and we always got along. I always had a lot of respect for him. And uh, that was a kind of a thing that just happened. We were in a transition where, um, you know, we were kind of looking for a new direction to go mm -hmm. with the winemaking. And uh, not that there's anything profoundly wrong with, you know, the previous uh, arrangement, but um, there was a real synergy there. And I really, you know, wanted to have that, you know, extra, you know, sort of creativity and that extra, you know, the, just all the things that I can't really describe very well that, that Ray is going to be able to bring to the table. And it worked out really well for him at the same time, too. Uh, he's doing Capitello. 
great lineup of wines. Uh, but he's got them at two or three different wineries spread out, out in the country, and he's living in Eugene. And so it was really, you know, it really, there was a great synergy there being able to, for allowing him to bring his operation for Capitello under our roof at Territorial mm -hmm. and then be our winemaker as well. And, and uh, it's just been a great marriage, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of the equipment that's in there belongs to him. Clearly, you know, a lot of it is ours. Uh, but, you know, if, 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 if Territorial needs a, 200 gallon tank for some little oddball thing that we're doing. Ray's got that. If he needs a 600 gallon tank that we have, and on and on like that. And so, mm -hmm. so it's a really, um, it's just a, it's a real organic, you know, sort of a symbiosis mm -hmm. of, of, um, of the two operations. So tell me about the, are, uh, as you look back at Territorial's growth, are there sort of milestones along the way that you look back on that were kind of big moments for the brand or big moments for the production? Uh, not really. You know, it's sort of, you know, went along gradually. I mean, um, there are some, you know, uh, you know, there's certainly evolution from the very beginning. You know, when we started out, uh, of course, we don't have, we have no distributor of any kind anywhere. And so... That was me, you know, we were self-distributed. And so that means that I'm out there in the market, standing in line with all the other reps that are working for the big distributors and small distributors with my bag, waiting my turn to, you know, do my thing with the, um, with the buyer. Um, I guess that was a watershed moment because that was something that I was not looking forward to at all. In fact, it was something that was causing me a little bit of anxiety because I'm not a salesman. How am I going to be a salesman? I can't do that. I, I don't want to do that. I'm going to be terrible at it. And um, so in that process, you know, I had to suck it up and I had to just like, you know, do it. And so I walked into uh, the first account I ever walked into was First Alternative Co-op in Corvallis. The lady there, Marlene, was lovely and friendly and didn't have fangs or claws. And, uh, <laughs> and it was a really, you know, unintimidating experience and so I showed the wines and talked about what we do and how we do it and where we're from and all that and uh, she put in an order for three cases and when I walked out of that place to my pickup I don't even think I touched the ground I couldn't believe it it's like wow that that worked that this is easy <laughs> and in fact I like this and um, and I'm good at it I didn't you know, it, it never occurred to me that I could be good at it. But I mean, it's not that I was necessarily good at being a salesman. It was just that I could present, mm -hmm. you know, the territorial product, the territorial story, the whole thing in a natural way that people could understand and, and like. And so I wasn't, I mean, I'm sure they get high pressure salespeople and doing that. And so, you know, not being that person mm -hmm. was a big help. And so, so I guess that was, that was kind of a, a, a watershed moment for me, that realization that I could sell wine, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then getting a distributor and learning, learning that whole thing. That was a huge learning curve in the beginning. You know, it's like we're, we're, a, we're a boutique artisan, small scale brand. So we need to have a boutique, small scale distributor that's really groovy, you know, 
not somebody that we're going to get lost in their book, you know, mm -hmm. which is some, a word that you heard a lot. People getting lost in a book of like, you know, huge distributor that also does Budweiser and they do everything, you know, it's like, where, how am I going to fit into mm -hmm. that book? Uh, but, you know, the thing that we learned was is that a lot of these distributors that were boutique were one man operations. They're running and gunning and one guy's trying to do the whole thing. And, you know, they, they ended up not doing a very good job. And that was why, you know, we switched to that platform because it got to the point where I was not doing a very good job. It was too much. Mm -hmm. And so I was starting to do poorly or not as well. And so we needed to, you know, make that change. And then it took us a few years to figure out that, you know, you don't, uh, you don't really want a distributor called Nice Legs or, you know, it's like, I look for the one that says Bevco, you know, and that one is going to work because, you know, they've got like, 10 people at desks doing who knows what but it's like a real business and you know <laughs> on day 30 the check is in the mail and it's like a big you know it's a running business and and you can help them you know not let you get lost in their book and so that was you know that realization that you know you really needed to go with you know an established well-run not necessarily big, but typically they are big, uh, that, that kind of distribution. So that was, I guess that was a kind of a moment for us, you know, figuring that out. Um, you know, the wine's taken me to some really cool places. Uh, we had a brief uh, but very large uh, experience in China. So I got to go to China. I always wanted to do that in 2012. We went there for a couple weeks and, and went from... Uh, Hong Kong up to Shanghai with another winery uh, called Left Coast Cellars and just had a blast. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And, you know, and it occurred to me, it's like, wow, this thing that we did, this wine that we make, this took me here. And so that was really cool for me. The other market that we really love is, is uh, Louisiana. So we have a great distributor in New Orleans called Bizu and crew to Bizu, and this is run by a great guy named James Moyes. And uh, so when we go down there, we go for a week. <laughs> and uh, my wife's niece lives there, so she goes, she comes with me and she visits her niece. And then I work in the days and then we, we eat and drink at night. And uh, that's a beautiful thing. You know, it's a unique American city. You know, when you go to that place, you're not in the United States anymore. And it's the only city like that, that that I know of that exists in this country. But I mean, it is something really special. Mm -hmm. So, so there's been you know highlights, you know, in that regard involving travel, mm -hmm. um, you know, figuring out the distribution game, which is still you know a work in progress, uh, and uh, and then the retail component. You know, the retail our retail room is a big part of what we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, having you know a wine club and keeping keeping that small so that we maintain that 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 uh, immediacy and that intimacy so where we know most of the people by name um, that's been you know a big revelation and how important that is because you know we have um, you know a ferociously uh, loyal group of regulars and also people that come in maybe periodically maybe once a month or a few times a year um, that, that actually, you know, they advocate for us. Mm -hmm. They have 
the hat, you know, they have the sticker, they have, you know, even though we don't do really that very much swag stuff, but I mean, we have, um, you know, um, you know, we've discovered that that's, you know, a huge component of, of the whole success of the thing is having that retail intimacy. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is, is that it's very non-pretentious. It's a very unintimidating place. Mm-hmm. Our taste room manager, coordinator, Lisa, who's been with me for a long, long time, is, is amazing. But the funny, the, the sort of the irony is, is that she's not really a big wine lover. She likes scotch and tequila. <laughs> and so people that come in to the, to the, so the wine room aren't going to get bombarded by like a sideways movie type of a situation. You know, the, the tasting room, you know, the retail room experience is not going to be like that. Mm-hmm. It's more like a wine bar. Um, if people want to get really uh, geeky about the wine, that's cool too. We can do that. Um, but uh, that was a, another realization that sort of also kind of happened organically was developing this intimacy mm-hmm. and this connection with people in the, in the uh, wine room. So as you look ahead then for, for territory, you mentioned you kind of found a sweet spot where you like to be, or you're thinking about possibly expanding a bit. What do you see as you look down the road for, for the brand and for the space? Uh, that's a good question. I don't really have a good answer for that. I mean, you know, it's um, sometimes it's, it's, you know, you've got a tiger by the tail and you're just living day to day and, and keeping things together uh, and sort of living more in the moment. You know, I think that we have a solid blueprint that 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 will you know allow us to have you know a trajectory that sort of follows the trajectory that's led us to where we are now mm-hmm. um, you know one thing that we have uh, uh, added which is has become uh, another you know key component of the whole operation is like custom crush you know making wines for other people that that um, that don't have their own winery and so so I guess you know, maintaining that mm-hmm. at a level that we can still also have the intimacy and the connection there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, I don't see any uh, plans to, you know, open up a tasting room in downtown Bend or, you know, do that. And in a lot of ways, you know, the industry, you know, we're seeing more and more of that. And that's, a, you know, maybe it's easier to answer the question of what I don't want to do. It's like, I don't want to have a tasting room in downtown Portland. You know, I look at that and I think, uh, you know, I've, I've seen some of the stuff that, that people are doing. I think it's great, you know, good on them for doing that. But, I mean, I, I look at that, that, and for me, I just see a st- sterility there that, that, you know, that we're not going to ever mm-hmm. go there. Mm-hmm. So you talked earlier about uh, your kind of initial impressions of the industry and of the people in it. So as it's grown and changed, what are some of the, the biggest changes you've seen and, and what, does the, what does the industry look like to you now in 2022? Well, uh, you know, it's more corporate. You know, there's been uh, more money coming in. There's been sales, you know, so I can't think of them off the top of my head, but you know, everybody knows about, you know, outside companies coming in and buying some of the existing wineries. Uh, most of the time it's invisible to the consumer and even in, as me as an industry guy, invisible to me. Mm-hmm. Like if you told me that so-and-so bought so-and-so 
10 years ago, I would say, oh, I, God, I didn't know that. Wow, okay. Um, so, so that's one component, you know, that's changed. It's become more corporate and more, uh, there's more money that's come into it. Um, another thing that maybe is a sort of a counterpoint to that is, is that you're seeing a lot more second and even third generation people taking the helm here. Just my neighbor right up here, Brigadoon, you know, the, it's, uh, the son, Matt, is mm -hmm. really stepping up and, you know, basically the winemaker there now, of course, Ponzi, and there's a few other examples mm -hmm. broadly down here mm -hmm. where you see second generation, like the, the children of the pioneers or some of the earlier starters are actually taking together. So that's, I mean, that's going to be a natural progression in, a, in an industry that, that has been around for, you know, about maybe two generations or three generations worth of time. So that's really cool seeing that. Um, you know, innovations, you know, there's not a lot of innovations that can be done in, a, in, a, in an ancient industry. Uh, there are a couple that come to mind, you know, like in the last 15 years, we're seeing, for example, you know, just some of the, some of the technological innovations like cross-flow filtration, for example, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were still using plate and frame and, and uh, diatomaceous earth filters, which are really, you know, now in, in hindsight seem really crude. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen a DE filter, but I mean, that looks like a Rube Goldberg nightmare gone wrong. Um, I mean, not that the not that the crossflow filter doesn't look like Rube Goldberg made it, but I mean, it, it it's such a cleaner, more efficient, better way to filter wine. And so, you know, there's been some technology advances that have gone on in the industry. Uh, so, but but I think you know, the big changes are are money mm -hmm. from outside of Oregon coming in, mm -hmm. and um, and then this generational thing. Mm -hmm. And on that kind of same same plane, there. What happens next? What what what's what's next to the industry? Are there things you're looking forward to? Or are there things you're uh, fearful of in the future? Well, um, uh, yes and no. You know, we still, uh, even though the industry has achieved you know a level of development and maturity and and basically just volume uh, that that few people you know envisioned back you know like in the times when we started. Uh, despite that fact, you know, we still see volatility. Uh, some of it is self-inflicted, you know, uh, people planting so many acres of grapes every year. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, we're, uh, you know, when you go to get grapes from a nursery, a lot of times they're, you know, people are still buying hundreds, if not thousands of acres worth of Pinot Noir vines to plant in the ground. And you think as a as a grower, but also as a industry person, of where's that all going to go? And so we still see, you know, fluctuations in uh, the industry that, you know, perhaps 30 years from now we won't see if it things even out and becomes more, you know, stabilized, um, reaches, you know, some kind of um, equilibrium. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of that, like I mentioned, was self-inflicted with so many people planting so many grapes, and where's that all going to go? Um, but we also have on the other side, you know, which we've seen recently was, you know, the wildfire season of 2020. So we destroyed, you know, 2000 gallons of Pinot Noir that could not be saved. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people did. And if hopefully they did, um, because it, it was, you know, basically unsalvageable. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so that combined with, you know, a frost that we had this year, which, uh, you know, impacted a lot of people that have never been frosted before, that's going to impact supply the other way. Mm -hmm. And so theoretically, if you're an economist, you look at that and you say, wow, that's going to, that's going to lower supply. And so demand, you know, so prices are going to go up. Um, I do have to say that I, I like to see like a generally low yielding year or a year that might be considered, you know, getting close to disaster category, as long as it affects everybody evenly, <laughs> you know, as long as it's like no one, not one region has mm -hmm. to pay the price because I do think that, um, you know, they're, 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 you know, we're, we're, we're constantly dancing around this issue of oversupply, mm. which makes it challenging for, uh, for not, you know, it's challenging for everybody, but it is, it is, it especially impacts the smaller producers, mm -hmm. um, that, that have, that don't necessarily have like the whole infrastructure or the, the resources to ride out those kinds of things or, or basically purchase their way out of, mm -hmm. You know, a supply problem, whether it's a deficit or a surplus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I guess I I would I'm looking forward to like more equilibrium. Um, you know, if 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 as many tanks went into buildings as vines went in the ground, um, you know, that's a start. But then you still have to sell it, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's something that we never really realized until we got you know up to our years in this thing is is like yeah it's it's quote unquote easy to grow it it's easy to make it but you can't force people to buy it hmm. so the selling is you know that's still a hard part and so so whatever's happening in the overall economy or specifically with the wine economy you know we're, we we feel it mm -hmm. well let's talk about that a little bit uh the selling it you mentioned kind of discovering a a, a joy and affinity for it early on how has selling wine changed, and, and what have you, how have you had to change to keep selling it? Now I, um, so now instead of going out and selling wine bottle by bottle, account by account, uh, you know, we'll, I'll go to a market and do like a staff training. So meet with the crew. I'm still me, and I'm still saying the same things. There, there's a there there can be some minor differences because you're dealing with industry insiders. Mm -hmm. So there's some things that you may not say to like a retail account, um, but uh, it's actually to me more enjoyable to sell to professionals. Mm -hmm. And when I say sell, I mean, I don't mean sell, I mean, you know, present and train and talk about, not only talk about, you know, who we are and, uh, and, and talk about the wine how it's made, how it's grown, talk about the sensory aspects of the wine, but also to talk about to, to them about how will you sell this wine? Mm -hmm. You know, here's something about this wine that you can really, you know, if you walk into an account, um, these are the kinds of things that you can say about this wine. It's going to help you sell that because you're talking basically to sales people. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And I, I love that, you know, I mentioned our retail room earlier. I, I love the whole retail room, but I don't like working in there because I don't like talking to people about wine that much that, um, and this is going to sound kind of nasty, I guess, but uh, the retail level of talking about wine has never interested me as much as like, you know, talking and working with professionals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of times in the retail setting, you'll have somebody that's really excited about wine, which is great. I love that. But they'll ask you a question about the wine, but, but they don't really want to hear what you say. They want to show you that they know all of that stuff and that they are going to answer the question for you. And so, you know, that's, it's a, it's, it's a funny kind of thing that happens, but that never happens in, you know, in, you know, in the, in the more in the professional mm -hmm. side of it. And so my role as selling wine has sort of evolved into more of, you know, presenting wine to people that will ultimately be selling it. So as you look back from the moment you're at now, what are the, 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 the what are you proudest of uh, in the wine journey so far? Um, you know, uh, I think that, that it's a, it's a, it's a much more micro thing for me. My biggest pride and my biggest joy comes from actual individual vintages, like every vintage that we release. I love the wines. I think that they're gorgeous. I think they're stunning. And just about every wine that comes out, I'm going to tell somebody this is, this is the best one that we've ever done. This is it. I mean, this is crazy. And that keeps happening. Mm -hmm. And that to me, so that's a much more micro thing. I don't know if I have any big sort of macro answer to that question, mm -hmm. but I still get a huge kick out of that. You know, every time we do a new release, every time we have something, you know, that we do. And then, um, and we do a lot of small, real specialty stuff, like single vineyard stuff, especially for wine club. Those are a lot of fun. So that's kind of where, where that uh, all happens for me. It's on that level. All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, right. Anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover that we should have covered? I don't think I can think of a single thing. I think I already repeated myself too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for your time and oh, for your welcome. stories out here today uh, and for the shade on this beautiful hot day. <laughs> I'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Well, thank, thank you. you. And thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.